0: The podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter. Sharing the story, living the life. For more information, go to belmontchapel.org.uk. Right, well, uh, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Lovely to see you. My name is Paul Cook. I'm one of the leaders here at Belmont, and it's my privilege this morning to be continuing our series uh, on Paul's letter to the Romans. But let me run past you a few scenarios, first of all. Uh, Here's the first one. Here's the first one. No, the first one doesn't want to come. It's a very shy first one we have today. Is it turned on? That's a very good question, Drew. Yay! Okay. Who is that rude, arrogant driver using the wrong lane to skip the queue? Mm. And why am I annoyed that I didn't think of it myself? Mm. Okay, some of you obviously relate to that one. How about this one? Who is Ashley that just sent me a friend request with a semi-nude photo? And why am I tempted to click on it? Mm. Not so funny, that one, is it? Uh, How about this one? Who is responsible for all the dreadful violence and starvation in Yemen? And why have I still not donated to the appeal that moved me? Those scenarios aren't mine, but I can relate to them, and perhaps you can relate to most of them as well. They come from this guy, whose name is Andrew Ollerton. He's the person who's written uh, the main resource that we're recommending to accompany our series in Romans. Uh, And they're at the start of his second chapter, uh, which deals with the, the passage that we're going to be looking at together in the letter to the Romans. If you were with us last week, Gemma very helpfully explained to us that Andrew Ollerton suggests that the the letter of Romans is a little bit like a mountain, uh, and uh, we have to work out the best way to scale this mountain. So last week, Gemma helped us with that by helping us to think about what route map we might take. As we go through this gospel. And next week, for example, we're going to be moving on to think about the crux of salvation. And then the week after that, we're going to be going to the place of peace, which sounds rather lovely, doesn't it? The place of peace. But I'm sorry, this morning we're in a somewhat gloomier place. This morning we are down in the valley of sin. Uh, And that sounds like it's not going to be any any fun at all, does it? Uh, And I'm sort of sorry about that. But. I don't think we should attempt a detour this morning. I think we have to go through the part of the book, the part of the letter which talks about the valley of sin. And the reason is because, as one writer put it, we can't truly appreciate just how glorious and beautiful and brilliant the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is unless we see the darkness against which it shines. So we're going to spend our time this morning mostly in that darker place, but it's because we want to see how much more brilliantly the gospel shines when we realize the darkness that is within us and that surrounds us, those things that Mike has already encouraged us to be saying sorry for this morning. I've got sorries of myself uh, for myself to share with you this morning. The first is, it's a really long passage. Uh, that um, officially is Andrew Ollerton's book, and I'm only going to be able to look at the first quarter of it. So it's chapter 1, verse 18, through to chapter 3, verse 20 of the letter to the Romans. So we're just going to be looking at the first 25%. And that means, second sorry, uh, there's going to be loads of stuff we're not even going to touch on this morning because we don't have the time to do it. And particularly, there's a whole lot of stuff in there about um, the relationship between Jewish people and non-Jewish people, Gentiles as they're called. And that's a current theme, a running theme in the letter to the Romans because it was made up, the Roman church was made up of people with a Jewish background and people with a non-Jewish background. But hopefully we'll be able to pick that up in one of the future talks because we don't have time to think about it today. And the third thing is, I'm sorry, but there may be things that you just don't like in what Paul says today. You might not like things I say, this Paul, but there may also not be things that, there may be things that Paul the Apostle says that you don't particularly like. And if you're new to church, some of this stuff might strike you as really weird and bizarre that we're going to be thinking about. Um, And I would just encourage you to stick with it because the Bible is full of stuff which is challenging and difficult, but I truly believe that it's often the things that are most challenging that ultimately end up being the things that are most fruitful in our walk with God. So we'll see how we go this morning. Um, What we want to focus on as we look at this section is why we actually need the gospel. Uh, Gemma helped us think about the gospel last week. She explained to us that it's the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ that he brings to us his salvation. But truly, we can only appreciate the good news if we realise that the alternative is bad news. And this morning, as we walk through the valley of sin, we are going to be thinking more about the bad news primarily than the good news. But the reason, as I've said, that we're going through the valley of sin is because we want to experience the glory and the beauty and the relief of the gospel in all of its fullness. So, if you've got a Bible, you might like to to open it now. We are uh, on page 1065 of the Green Church Bibles. There are a few dotted around, Uh, otherwise the verses will be up on the screen. But let me just pray as we open God's Word together. So, Father God, we thank you so much for your Word. We thank you that you have preserved it down the centuries and that you inspired it in the first place. And we thank you particularly for Paul's letter to the Romans. And Lord, we do recognise that the stuff in it which is hard for us, the stuff in it which is difficult for us to understand and to get to grips with. But this morning we pray that through your Spirit, who inspired this word in the first place, you will speak to our hearts and you will bring to us those things which are going to be helpful in our walk with you. So please do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, why we need the gospel. Paul begins this way. Verse 18, the wrath of God. I'm going to stop there for a minute, second. I'm not going to do this all the time, don't worry. But I do think we need to just unpack this idea of the wrath of God because it does sound really very scary when we think about the wrath of God. Um, and it is scary, to be honest, the wrath of God. It is scary, but uh, I think there's a helpful way to think about it that uh, I've discovered by um, just reading around this week. It's a guy called Jeremy Treat, uh, and he says this about the wrath of God. He says, God's wrath isn't a a sort of a, a shaken can of irritability waiting to just explode on otherwise innocent and unknowing people. He says, the wrath of God isn't either incompatible with the love of God. Rather, the wrath of God arises for the purpose of protecting that which he loves. And so his wrath, the wrath of God, is the rightful expression, the rightful expression of his holy love in the face of sin and evil. So I hope that definition is helpful for you. I found it helpful when I was thinking about that this week. So Paul says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. And then he goes on to talk about four different ways in which we can suppress God, the voice of God, the truth of God in our lives. And we're going to look at those uh, in turn. Uh, We're going to think about the ways in which we can ignore the lessons of creation, how we can worship idols, how we can misuse sex, and how how we can ignore God's spirit. Okay, so that's where we're going to be going uh, with the rest of the passage. So, first of all, we can ignore creation. Um, Paul says this, Verse 20, uh, since the creation of the world, there's the, the theme for us, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. There is a, there is a technical term for this, uh, it's called natural revelation, it's the idea that when we look out at the world and the universe, we can see evidence of the creative hand of God, of course, it doesn't tell us everything as we look out into the world about, about God. We need the Bible for that. This is what reveals the Lord Jesus Christ to us and God's plans and purposes to us. But when we see creation, Paul says, we see something of God's power. Uh, and this is the theme of the, of the whole of the Bible, really. In the Psalms, for example, we read, Psalm 19, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim the work of God. Of his hands. They tell us something about God. And I think in our day and age, we actually have even more amazing things that blow our minds. I don't know if you've seen this series, How the Universe Works. Have any of you seen that on the television? No, just me. <laughs> I binge watched this last year. There are 10 series and each one has 10 episodes and I... <laughs> I completely binged on this. I was utterly in awe of it. I think I know more about black holes now than I ever, ever want to, but um, it is amazing. The universe, from the tiniest subatomic particle to the vastness of the universe and the possibility of multiverses is utterly mind-blowing. And for me, every single episode I saw, I was thinking, wow, how amazing is God who has done all of these amazing things and put us in the only Goldilocks world that we know of, where things are just right for life to flourish. How amazing is God? Uh, the program is thoroughly secular, but it really encouraged me uh, to think about how God is revealed in the, in the universe. So that's the first thing. Paul says we can ignore that stuff. Second thing he says, we can, we can worship idols. We can put other things In the place that only truly God should occupy. Verse 21 For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being, and birds, and animals, and reptiles. And when we think about idolatry, I don't know what picture comes into your head, but often it's this kind of picture. And when we think about that kind of thing, we might think, well, yeah, actually, that is pretty foolish, isn't it? I mean, how can you possibly think that just a statue made by human hands is actually a god? That seems pretty foolish. But we need to remember, don't we, that not all idols are made of gold. There are so many things that we can actually give our time and our attention, and our money too, that show that they are actually more important in our scheme of of values than God is. And some of those things can be really good things. Some of those things that are on that cow up there, that bull up there, are really good things. But if they take the place that God should have in our lives, they become idols, and they become a snare for us, and we've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for something that is not, Im- not, mor- not immortal, not always glorious, and won't satisfy our deepest needs and longings. We can worship idols to suppress God's voice. And then the third thing that Paul goes on to talk about is that we can misuse sex. I- I've kept the same picture here, partly because I think sex is often treated as an idol in our culture, but also, confession time, I did make the mistake of Googling this, and uh, the images were were not helpful. So um, I'm sticking with this one for this morning. Um, And uh, this is what Paul says. He says, Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. And I think here Paul is primarily talking about heterosexual sexual relations. And he's saying when we put those above God, it's a form of idolatry. And those should not be the things that are uppermost in our affections. But then he goes on to talk about same-sex sexual relations in the next verses. He says, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. And this is one of those really difficult passages, isn't it, in our contemporary culture? Of course it is. We don't have the time this morning to go into this in anywhere near the level of detail that it warrants, so I'm I'm not going to try and do that. But what I am going to do is recommend to you a couple of resources that I've found really helpful around this whole debate over the past few years. Uh, They're both by the same person, as it happens. The first is a book that was written back in 2015, I think, by a guy called Preston Sprinkle, it's called People to be Loved, and it takes a, a general overview uh, of this subject of same-sex uh, relationships. Uh, and personally, I found it a very helpful book, both because of the way it looks at the Bible and because of the kind of pastoral heart and compassion that it brings to the, si- to the subject, which is very important. And then the second book is one that he, he wrote last year, I think it was. It's called Does the Bible Support? Same-Sex Marriage, 21 Conversations from a Historically Christian View. And he wrote this book because there are lots of other interpretations out there. Of course there are. And he wanted to engage with those interpretations from a historically Christian view. And so he's written this book where he enters into debate with these different uh, ideas and interpretations. And I think he does it very graciously. uh, And to my mind, he does it very convincingly. And this would be the view that I personally espouse as well. So these are two resources that uh, I found really helpful personally. And I'll just say three things um, that have emerged from this that I think are, are relevant this morning. The first is that when the Bible talks about this issue, it's talking about sexual practices primarily, not about sexual orientation. Orientation is a relatively modern concept, so we wouldn't expect the Bible to talk about it. But the Bible's focus is on what we actually do with our bodies. Um, We have the orientation that we have. And I know for a fact that in our church family, we have people who would describe themselves as being gay or bisexual or lesbian uh, or same-sex attracted or whatever it happens to be. People use different terms to describe it. And that's great, we should be a diverse congregation because it's a diverse world out there and everybody, irrespective of their ethnicity or their nationality or their sexuality or their, their job or whatever they do, they need the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's a good thing. But um, what the Bible is focused on is not the orientation that we have, but what we do with our orientation, the choices that we make with our bodies. That's its focus. The second thing is that Paul has a real focus, I think, in the back of his mind all the time that he's writing about the Genesis creation story, particularly Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Uh, We've already seen him in Romans chapter 1 talk about creation, haven't we? And he'll go on to talk about Adam in chapter five. He'll go on to talk about creation groaning in chapter eight. It's a theme for him. Here in chapter one, he picks up on Genesis chapter one and verse 27, which is the reference to God making uh, the original human pair male and female. Um, So he alludes to that here in Romans chapter one. The second verse that you've got there from Genesis chapter two and verse 24, the original marriage uh, in, uh, in Genesis, if you like. He doesn't quote that here in Romans, but he does quote it in his letter to the Ephesians, chapter five. So it's clearly a verse that's important for him. And those two together, I think, provide a, fair, a framework that ena- enables Paul to develop his understanding of human sexuality uh, and how that relates to God's creation. Those verses, that, or the verse that I've put on the screen there, Um, that brings those two Genesis quotations together, of course, isn't from Paul. It's from Jesus. And Jesus isn't talking about same-sex sexual relations in this passage, it's Matthew 19. He's talking about heterosexual divorce. But it shows that that framework from Genesis is really important for Jesus as it was for Paul. And then the third thing I want to say Um, is that this is never just an issue. Yes, we have to look at what the Bible says, the big picture and the individual passages, but it's never just an abstract thing where we're looking at what this word means and that word means because we're dealing with people, people who have feelings and emotions, people who may have had difficult experiences in the past and been hurt, possibly been hurt by those of us who are followers of Jesus, And what does Jesus say? He says that we need to love our neighbour as ourselves. And we need to remember that this is never just an issue. It is always a place where we need to be bringing the, the compassion and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ into our relationships and our discussions. So, that's all I wanted to say this morning about that topic. I know there's so much more to say, but I'm going to leave it there. And I'm going to move on to the fourth thing uh, that Paul talks about, which is about ignoring uh, the Spirit of God. I found this really hard to find a, a, a title for this section uh, because it's so broad what Paul talks about. But this is what he says. And I, I went with ignoring his spirit because in the end, I felt it was the opposite of the fruit of the spirit that Paul writes about in Galatians chapter five. So here's what he says, verse 28. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Wow, That is quite a catalogue, isn't it? And it goes from things that are obviously crimes and clearly sins, like murder, to things that we might think, well, not such a big deal, is it, Paul? Gossiping, a bit of envy, is it really such a big thing? But he says they're all things that ought not to be done. And what I find particularly interesting about this last bit of chapter one is how he uses the word they repeatedly. They, 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 they. And usually when that happens, it's because a a writer or a speaker is trying to make a distinction between them, the bad guys out there, and us, the good guys in here. That's normally the way this kind of language is used. But in Paul, it's different. Paul is setting a trap, if I can put it that way. And this is how Andrew Ollerton describes it. He says, imagine Phoebe. We haven't come across Phoebe yet, but she crops up in chapter 16 of the letter to the Romans. She, Andrew Olderton suggests, is perhaps the person who was given the original letter to take it to the house churches in Rome. So he says, imagine her arriving in Rome um, and reading this letter to the church that's gathered in the house. And as she described the downward slope of idolatry and sexual immorality, imagine the Jewish Christians leaning in. Do you remember at the start I said there were Christians who had a Jewish background and Christians who had a non-Jewish background? Imagine the Jewish ones leaning in, says Paul, and thinking in their minds, yeah, sock it to those pork-eating, idol-worshipping, pansexual Gentiles, Paul. I don't know if they'd have said those words, but (laughs) imagine, imagine something like that. The trap is set. Phoebe draws breath, and launches into Romans chapter two. Let's do the same. Romans two. You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment, that wrath of God that we started off by thinking about? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Do you see the change? They has gone. You is in. And you means me. Each one of us individually. This is us. This is us. That trap has been sprung. And if we think we're religious, we're good, we're better, Paul says, no, you're not. You need the gospel too. I need the gospel, too. We, all of us, need the gospel. It doesn't matter about our ethnicity, our nationality, what we do for a living, whether we're male or female, what our sexual orientation is. We all need the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is where Paul finishes this passage in chapter 2 and verse 4. He focuses in God's kindness on his forbearance and his patience and his kindness. And he says it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Mike talked about that when we were praying earlier. Repentance means turning away and walking as steadfastly as I can with God's help towards the Lord Jesus Christ, living in his way. We all need God's kindness to lead us to repentance because that's the way out of The only way out of the valley of sin. And I'm just going to jump ahead to next week's passage very quickly because this is what it says. It sums it up beautifully. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all, by nature, in the valley of sin. We all, by nature, can expect nothing but God's wrath as a result. But here's the good news. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. That's the good news. There's a way out of the valley of sin. So we've been there this morning, but next week we're gonna see what that looks like as we go on up the mountain. We're going to be thinking about salvation. We're going to be thinking about grace. What is so amazing about it? And God willing, I hope you'll come back to find out why that good news is so amazing. Amen.